We have three good readings this morning, and I'm going to preach on all of them, but a little out of order. So I'm going to speak about the story of the golden calf, then the gospel reading uh, about the parables of the wedding garment and the guests invited to a wedding, and then finally to the reading from Philippians, which is a sort of statement about maybe how people, Christian people should live with one another and what the, the ways in which we understand that and the source and origin of those ideas within the formative period of Christian faith and life. So today we have the famous story of the golden calf and Moses, and while this all is going on, is on the mountain and he's receiving the Ten Commandments. In some places in the original, the Ten Commandments it, the, the, he is the Ten Words. So he's up there receiving the Ten Commandments, and he's been gone a long time, and the people are worried, anxious, and nervous. And they are pressing Aaron to do something in Moses' absence. And this begins, of course, the great... Uh, thing you can describe even today, and that is Aaron is guilty of a failure of nerve. And so he chooses to uh, find a quick fix. You and I live in another age of the quick fix. This is a chronically anxious culture. And there's always something to wind people up, isn't there? Ebola. And if you're news junkies like Nancy and me, you're, re you're watching, you're, we're overwatching, like overthinking, you know, watching it endlessly being described. And it ratchets up people's fear and anxiety. Finally, Aaron can't stand it anymore. And so he tells them to give him their gold jewelry and so forth, and they melt it down and make a golden calf. And they begin to worship it. This is not something, they're, they're not creating a new religious expression. The people of Israel have passed through a whole a host of cultures. And there's a term used in anthropology and in history called syncretism. And syncretism means what, when one culture and another culture come together, there's a third thing produced from this coming together. And so there's a lot of what they call Baal worship, B-A-A-L, that's going on here. And people are uh, worshiping the golden calf. God tells Moses on the mountain, you need to go down there right now and tell these people that I am mightily angry and I'm going to destroy them. And Moses pleads with God and said, don't do that. Think about the great tradition, the grand narrative that we, have, we read in the Hebrew Bible, starting from Adam and Eve and Abraham and Isaac and Joseph, and we're moving through here, and we've come now to the defining moment in the history of the people of Israel, the Exodus, and they've come into the wilderness. Spare these people. You have always been merciful. When your judgment and your mercy collide, your mercy trumps your judgment. So please do this. And God relents. 
So one of the first learnings from this reading is that we learn something about God's ability to change his mind. This great unmoved mover can relent and go in another direction. And by virtue of that, giving us some understanding of his unconditional acceptance and love and his steadfastness and his faithfulness. And so he relents, and Moses now will bring the tablets. They couldn't wait, the people of Israel, for the tablets. Because if you read it in the original and you understand what these people were yearning for, what was coming, the gift was not a golden calf, it was the word. It was the ordering principle of the people of Israel through the Ten Commandments. And so they just simply couldn't wait. They wanted symptom relief. And we live in an age that exalts symptom relief uh, into the highest good. And it's not surprising because we have the technology and we have the ability now to give people symptom relief pretty much. And I don't know what you think, but when I suffer a health problem or I'm in great discomfort, I will go to the doctor and I will say, I will take all my money out of the bank and give it to you if you make me feel better now. And of course, this completely bypasses what Moses uh, said, and that is that for us to affect change in behavior both personally and in relationship, we need often or most of the time to do the hard work. And who wants to do the hard work? So this is about the fact that God remains steadfast even in the midst of our desire for a quick fix. Moses always exercises excellent leadership in, the, in that He refocuses the people of Israel from their place looking back to the place of remembered good times to somewhere in the future where you receive a new self-understanding, a new definition, and a clearer vision of God's will and purpose for you. I went to my 50th high school reunion last night in San Mateo, California. And I had a wonderful time, and I saw, I'm fortunate because uh, most of the people that I went to high school with, I've known since I was five years old, for a long time. And you saw two things. One were people who are looking back here and believe that their high school years were the halcyon days, the high point of their lives. Some of them you, you saw too, you would be the thing that I always think about myself is that if I'd have known how to live this long, I'd have taken better care of myself. And then there are those people who have uh, continued to have a forward focus in their lives, in their relational lives, in their work lives, in their careers. Um, some of the stories I heard, people who are doing 
even as they retire, very righteous things, helping people a lot. It's quite moving to see. So Moses has a job. He has to keep people focusing forward and not on the halcyon days, the great days where, you know, we think it was the best. The learning there is, you know, we need to uh, learn how to cultivate the practices of the non-anxious presence. You hear me say this all the time. So in the gospel for today, we have uh, one of the things that is an example of the necessity, even in a modest way, to become a student of the Bible and to have some idea about how it was put together and some idea about uh, what it is that's in there. You know, there's a fancy word, hermeneutics, which means interpretation. And you need to know something about the history of it, how people have interpreted these things over time. And when I read this parable, it used to make no sense to me that we have a situation where a, a king invites people to a wedding and they refuse to go, no surprise. But then he's exasperated about their behavior because they treat his slaves badly. And then he destroys the city and he makes a decision to say, I want uh, anybody to be invited. And they go out and invite people to come. And some of them don't come. And finally, they're just going grabbing people off the street and bringing them into the dining area to have this wedding dinner. And so they drag some poor guy into the thing, and he doesn't have a wedding garment on. And so he, the king orders him to be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I love that. Gnashing of teeth. It looks like Michelangelo in The Last Judgment, you know, national So here's the thing. Why, why, when the first part of the parable, the first ten verses, uh, speak about going out into the highways and the byways and bringing people into the feast? And this is a story about God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And the inside baseball is that Matthew is speaking about the welcoming that needs to take place with the Gentiles. Matthew was a former rabbi. He was a Christian Jew, and he was probably the pastor of a Jewish Christian synagogue that was now 80% Gentile. So how do we cope with these new and different people uh, within our midst, and what do we require? So Matthew takes the second par parable, which is separate, a separate unit, as they say in, in biblical studies. And he includes the story of the wedding garment. It's what they call redacting. And he does this in order to say, well, if you're going to let the Gentiles in, you can't, you can't just let them off the hook completely. You've got to have them dot the I's and cross the T's. So there's some things that they need to do. The second part, the last four verses, we don't know the introduction to that parable. It's tacked on to the other parable. So we don't know what the beginning of that parable sounded like, what the introduction was to tell us why are we having a parable about the wedding garment. It's added 
for the purpose of reinforcing the fact, well, we may be generous and let you in, but you need to do some things, right? And my own personal opinion is that the history of Christianity is replete with examples of the conversation, I'm putting this in, in mild and diplomatic terms, of how Christian people have had to get along with one another and discuss differences. And we've talked over the last few weeks about essential and non-essential, adiaphora in the Greek text is the word. What is essential and what is non-essential? So the important takeaway from this parable is God's welcome to everyone. God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness as the engine that drives the generosity of spirit that allows us to be God's people in the world. So we go to Paul, who is writing to the Philippian congregation in Philippi, one of the healthiest of the congregations of the churches that Paul founded in his missionary work. And he's speaking about two people in this letter to the Philippians that uh, are named Iodia and Syntyche. So, as it turns out, these are two women. We've not emphasized this over a, a number of centuries, principally because in the King James Version of the Bible the authorized version of the Bible, uh, Yodia is Yodias, which makes it a man. It is not written in the Greek text, Yodias, it's Yodia. There is no Greek manuscript that we have where it's described as Yodias. So do you think there might be some special pleading? And the issue here is that we're not striking some uh, radical feminist blow here by speaking about this, but we're merely saying that there is in the biblical text evidence for women in positions of leadership in the early Christian churches that Paul founded, of all people, who often does not sound like a very sympathetic feminist in other places. So they've had some sort of a disagreement. And he's writing to them. And he says, you know, you need, to, you need to get along together. And there are differences and we need to treat one another with charity. And uh, in the midst of controversy and difficulty, he says... Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That was one of my grandfather's favorite biblical passages. He used to quote it by heart in the authorized version when I was a little boy. And so... Here's the thing we need to know about this. This is extremely good advice. This is put this on your refrigerator. You know? But a lot of people begin to think when they read this stuff, in absence of any kind of hermeneutical principles applying, say, well, this is Christian advice. And it is. 
But that's not where it comes from. It comes from Greek Stoic philosophy. Paul was a Hellenized Jew. He lived in the diaspora. He knew all about the Greek philosophers. And so when he uses this material, he is quoting from a list that can be found in Greek Stoic philosophy. And why is that important? Not to debunk the Christian application that is being made by these words, but the fact that he is making intelligible to his readership what he's talking about. A lot of people think that uh, if you use material that surrounds uh, the, the, the thought world of the Bible, that you're somehow straying. And Paul is speaking about what is necessary to be a decent human being. And that being a decent human being is not inconsistent with hearing things like this. One commentary I read said uh, in the middle of this, uh, speaking about Greek philosophical influences on uh, Paul and his writings and in other places in the New Testament, that they come from Greek Stoic philosophy, and he says they are none the worse for that. So we're supposed to think, uh, at least I think, that this stuff is all good wherever we find it. And we need to use it. And we need to see how it connects. So all these dots connect as we speak about uh, living a life consistent with God's purposes. So this week, uh, always work on the non-anxious presence in the face of the anxiety and reactivity of other people. It's important to be able to learn how to do that. You do that the best, by the way, not trying to fix other people. You do it by working on yourself. You make yourself non-anxious. Don't worry about anybody else being anxious. You can't fix them, right? We cannot will change in other people. It is impossible. And so what we need to do is say, how can I change myself? And maybe the starting point is saying, I need to change myself before we start it. You know, because all of us need need to do that on a regular basis, on our Christian pilgrimage. But also this week, uh, see if you can find any of the qualities on the list. This is a description, by the way, from Paul about character. And character means living your life according to certain principles. So see if you can discover in yourself, and they're there, uh, whatever is honorable, just, pure, pleasing, and commendable. And these things truly matter when we express them. And when we do, we lack for nothing. Amen.